Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald. Please do not forget to subscribe to the Today's the Day Changemakers YouTube channel and leave a review on Google or Apple Podcasts. That helps more people hear my incredible guests. As we enter the new year, I am pleased to welcome my first guest of 2023, groundbreaking author and changemaker Tony Brazunas. Tony has blazed a trail all his own in the world of journalism, oftentimes clashing with traditional media outlets. His story is one of integrity and bravery in the face of impediments to change and free thought. He exemplifies all a journalist should be and has so much to teach young journalists in our ever-changing media landscape. Tony's new book, Red, White, and Blind, comes out on January 10th. This is a must-read as Tony explains what it means to have a balanced media diet and really helps us to understand why the media censors some of the things that we really do need to hear. I hope you will listen in to this episode. Please subscribe to the Today's the Day Changemakers YouTube channel, stream this podcast on all streaming sites. Reviews and shares are always welcomed and help us to be heard. Like us on Facebook and Instagram by going to Today is the Day Live It. To learn more about Today is the Day Consulting and Coaching Services and the new Today is the Day Changemakers Connective, go to todayisthedayliveit.com. Sign up for our mailing list to be notified when new events and networking opportunities become available. Also, I am the CEO and co-founder of the Zach G. Applauder Kids Foundation. To learn more about how the organization is connecting children with a financial need to an ongoing creative outlet, go to applaudourkids.org. The views expressed by all Today's the Day Changemakers podcast guests are their own. Their appearance on the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. Have a great week, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald, and I am so excited to have Tony Brazunas as my first, first interview of 2023. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm wonderful. Happy New Year, everybody, and great to be here. Happy New Year is right. And again, my name is Jody Grinwald. And every single week I interview the change makers, the inspirers and those who are disrupting the status quo. And that is exactly why I'm so excited that Tony is my first guest this year. So, Tony, before we get started, I know we're going to have a really dynamic conversation. I just want to read a little bit of your bio and then we'll get right into it. So Tony Bazunas is an independent journalist and author of the book, Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness. And if you're watching the YouTube channel, you can see it behind Tony. I have one in my hand here as well. And Tony was born in Iowa and grew up in a, um, what would you say, an intentional, is that the word, an intentional spiritual community? I mean, people say sometimes a hippie commune. Um, I use intentional <laughs> spiritual community because there's a little bit of nuance, but it was halfway between those two ideas. If you picture something in your head, that's what I thought. I thought I was as I was looking at the word. I'm like, let me, let me, let me ask him to expand on that. At 21, Tony boarded a plane to the People's Republic of China, where he wrote his first book, Double Happiness. It recounts his experiences teaching and traveling in China. And when Tony is not writing, he is engineering front-end internet applications, spending time with his wife and son. And how many dozen apple trees do you have there? About two dozen apple trees here. Yeah, we got an apple orchard. That's in, in California. And when he is not doing any of that and has a little leftover time, I guess you play guitar and soccer with some friends. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just a little busy, Tony, huh? Yeah, it's, a cool life. it's a good life. <laughs> 
two books, some apple trees, a child, a wife, and 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 all the other wonderful things that you're doing. So why don't we start off a little bit? I mean, I'm sure people are like, what does this mean, hippie commune? So where were you born and, and a little bit more about where you lived? I think it sounds so interesting. Sure. So my parents were hippies. Um, they uh, met, they were high school sweethearts in St. Louis, and then they sort of went their separate ways, got back together and um, were running this like uh, theater troupe for, for kids in Iowa City. So I was born there, but my parents were still hopping around. So then we ended up back in St. Louis. We ended up in uh, Vermont, uh, where I spent my first couple years. But they were they were uh, following this particular spiritual path of this guy named John Bennett in England, who was sort of a disciple of uh, Gurdjieff, who was this Russian guy who had first brought uh, Eastern spirituality to the West. So long story short, they had sort of followed him to England. And so they did this uh, course in England. And then he decided it was time to start something in the United States. And this author, through this uh, sequence of events, they came into possession of this large estate from the George Washington's family in West Virginia. So I spent my first 15 years of my life basically in West Virginia on this uh, intentional community uh, where I say hippie commune, but then people maybe envision like sex, drugs, and rock and roll and everybody dropping acid and like, you know, polyamory <laughs> and stuff. It wasn't that. It was people meditating a lot, people following the spiritual path towards inner enlightenment, towards this refined state of consciousness. And so my my memory is running around with the other kids playing soccer and stuff like that out in the fields. And then the adults kind of quietly meditating, you know, or maybe building a meditation hut out on the, you know, out in the forest or something like that. So that was sort of my childhood. It was, I have pretty idyllic memories of it. It was a, it was a nice time. Uh, the adults would sort of let the kids run around. So we had a lot of fun. So that's Claymont, it was called. It's in West Virginia. That's where I spent the first uh, 12, 13, 14 years of my life. And to jump off that a little bit into how I sort of became, I'm, I'm, I call myself a nonpartisan independent journalist, is in that mentality of Claymont and the commune, there was this sort of sense that uh, people were like, without even discussing it, people tended to be Democrats and kind of think like Republican. I didn't know what it meant, but it kind of had this negative, like almost evil connotation. And people that were Christians, you know, tended to be like, oh, they're probably not very smart if they're that's their spiritual path. And so, so there were some biases there that I, I, I didn't learn for another 10 or 15 years. But then we moved. My dad ended up taking a job. It was money. My, my mom started being like, look, we don't have any money. Like, this has been great for a number of years. But like, what's going to happen? We have a third child now. My little brother was born. So we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And I went to a pu big public high school. Red, white, and blue were the colors. It was the Milton Eagles. It was this very sort of all-American experience. And I made a lot of close friends. And lo and behold, a lot of my friends were Republicans, or at least their parents were. Um, some of them were Christian, and they weren't evil, and they weren't stupid. You know, they were very interesting, intelligent people. So it was the beginning of my sort of uh, exploration of these different sides of, of perspectives that we tend to take and that we tend to have judgments about if we don't think it through. So then we fast forward, I went to college in Massachusetts, very liberal, liberal arts college in Massachusetts, Amherst College. Then I went to China, as you mentioned, and that's that time in China really is what sort of broke me open in a, in a whole way. That was the source of my first book, is that experience in China. And it was sort of one more level of all the judgments I had about China and like Chinese people and, and you know, people outside of the United States and then meeting people in China and having those experiences. And I backpacked through the country. And so 
this is a long way of just sort of giving me setting up how I came to write Red, White, and Blind is really this lifelong experience of looking at different perspectives, looking at everything from as many perspectives as I can. I just want to go back a little bit because that 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 was great. Thank you for doing that and setting that up for us. Is that so? When you were when you were at the uh, at the commune, were you as a young child taught about meditation? Because right now children are a lot of children are being taught about meditation. It's all of a sudden becoming something that's a really hot topic for everyone at all of all ages. Was that something you partake were able to partake in as well? Well, it's interesting. Uh, some of the kids did meditate. We would sometimes meditate with the adults, but. It's a really interesting thing. We were never told as children that we should follow what our parents did. And I think it's a really clear thing because my my brother and sister and I had this long debate going on about 15 years. Like, did we grow up in a cult? Like, we weren't really sure. And I think for me, the reason that I don't think that I did is because of that. The kids were never told you're supposed to do what the adults do. You're not supposed to think what the adults do. You're not supposed to meditate like meditate like them. You're on your own journey and you figure out things for yourself. And so I really thank that. I, I'm really thankful for that because I think if it had been all the kids should sit down, think just like the adults, meditate like the adults, do the same things, even if that is healthy for you, even if that is like objectively a good idea, I think forcing kids to have one particular set of beliefs, I think is not a good idea. So, so I'm certainly, I have meditated throughout my life. You sort of absorb these values from the adults that you're around as a child, but I wasn't sat down and told to meditate as a child. No. Now, yeah, And I, and I understand because it makes sense. People, some people might think that that would have was a, a cult type of setup because of the way you, you know, you explain it, but we don't, we don't know. And, and does it still exist? The, the place where they lived back then? It does. It's still there's still Claymont. It's um, what's interesting is as Washington, D.C. has grown, it's this part of West Virginia that kind of reaches out. It's where Harper's Ferry is sort of reaches out towards the D.C. area. And as D.C. has grown, it's almost now a suburb of the sort of greater Washington, D.C. area. And so neighborhoods have popped up all around it. It used to be this sort of like rural, you know, paradise kind of thing. And now it's like there's neighborhoods and the town is like sort of nearby it's still there. Um, they don't, it's not the full functioning community it was. I think they run it now and maybe somebody that's watching this might be there. Um, they run it as a retreat center. Um, I know there's organic farming that I think was even uh, funded by the federal government at one point for some uh, organic farming. And they do retreats for like Buddhist groups in DC to come out and, and stuff like that. And they have chefs that cook. So yeah, go check out claymont.org and, uh, and go check it out. <laughs> And then as, as your journey was evolving, you know, did writing come before going to China? You know, I, I did you love to write or was it that you, when you were in China, then all of a sudden this this writer and you came out, which which came first? I think I was a writer all along to some extent. Um, I learned I mean, it, that school. So there was a school at Claymont and it was a very sort of Waldorf informed education style where there was a lot of like creativity was um, was a big priority. But um, I would also give some credit to Amherst College. I went to that liberal arts college in Massachusetts where there's a lot of authors have come out of that. And I'm now realizing it's because it, they really do prioritize in all of your classes, maybe except for math. Um, you end up writing. You end up just writing all the time in that, at that college. And so that was a big part of it. But what's funny is I went to China with my guitar, I brought my acoustic guitar. And my plan, if I go back and read my journal, I had a journal at the time, my plan was to like become a great guitarist. And I wanted to like become a big uh, musician. And I was actually, I had a roommate and he was, um, he, he was the one that was always writing. And he was telling me he was gonna write a book about his experiences in China. And then um, 
you know, I became decent at guitar, but it, it's, you know, there's a lot of levels you have to get to to sort of try to make that a career. And so instead what happened is because of my whole experience there. And then when I backpacked around and I, I just had this crazy wild set of experiences, near death experiences, I got sick in a hospital and almost died in China. I mean, all these things happened. And I got back to the United States and I still wasn't thinking about writing. Uh, but what happened is I actually got ill. I was physically sick for, for several months and I wasn't exactly sure why. And it was a friend of mine from Claymont, this guy, Mark Schulte, maybe he's watching. He, he said, uh, he, he contacted me and he said, Tony, um, you know, we're doing this magazine on education. He was based in DC. And he's like, can you write us something about your experience in China? Like, that's an interesting experience. And we're, we're, we want to do a whole issue on education. And so I did. At first, I even told him, no, I was like, no, no, I'm not really a writer. I don't think that's good for me. But, but he was like, just put something, just put pen to paper. I know you can throw something together. And so it's interesting. I, I started writing and, um, and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. It was a crazy experience. And they finally published the piece at like 6,000 words, which is really long for a magazine article. I got really like many, many pages. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it went in this little magazine about education in DC. And then I was sitting there and I was, I was actually starting to get better. Um, and I moved out. I'd been living in my parents' place. I, I now know that my illness had to do with I had gone to China and my entire life had changed and I'd come back. My parents were living in St. Louis and I moved back into my house and I couldn't fit my old life, my new life into my old life. You know, people would say, oh, you went to China. So you, people ate dogs. Right. And then I, you know, say no. And then that would be the end of the conversation. You know, people would want to have a beer and I didn't have any, any uh, outlet to share my experience. And so I was bottled it up inside. And that, that, that was a lot of the illness I was going through. So I started writing. I moved out on my own. I got my own apartment and I went on this. Uh, there was this NPR show. Uh, it was this local show in St. Louis, Missouri. And they had this uh, California guy on his name's Tom Bird. And his his whole thing was, um, you know, you've got a book in you. And he was very California. This is before I'd moved out here. And uh, and he was, you know, he did his whole thing about how he coaches people to write. And um, I called into the show and they put me on the air. And I was like, yeah, hey, so I wrote this piece about my time in China and I got it published in this magazine. But I'm wondering if, you know, there might be a bigger venue uh, for this. Like, how, how would I get my article? I was just thinking maybe I could get it published in a bigger magazine. And so Tom Bird, bless his heart, he's like, well, you know, you could do this. You go, there's literary marketplace. This is before the Internet was really everything was there. You could still use this big book called the Literary Marketplace. And he said, but I think you have a book in you. <laughs> and um it was just such the perfect message. And I hung up the phone, I got off the, the NPR show and I just, within a day or two, I was like, I'm going to write a book. And, um, and that was the start of double happiness. And so that, that put me on a journey, you know, it took 10 years to finish double happiness and to publish that, but that was my journey back towards health, back towards integrating what I experienced in China with my life in the United States. And so, uh, yeah, I wasn't planning on talking about that as, as part of the story of red, white, and blind, but that's my first book. Yeah. You know what, though? I, I feel like sometimes that's why I, I always say this is a natural conversation. There is no scripting here. There is no pre-questions. This is just natural. And the reason is, is because I think it's really important for the listeners to hear that if you didn't call in to that show, we may not be sitting here right now. Yeah. And if that person, Tom Bird, hadn't had the vision, you know, hadn't been the visionary and the coach that he was. Yeah. And, and red, white, and blind wouldn't be written either. So that's that's why it's just that, what is that catalyst? We sometimes have to we just go back for a minute and, and think about what was the catalyst that brought us here? And what is the next one coming that if we don't pay attention to, 
we could miss it. It's, you know, I think there's a, a movie called Sliding Doors, right? Where they show two different endings. Um, and and that's that's how life is. If it depends on what path you wind up taking. So yes, I definitely want to talk about Red, White, and Blind. But before we get there, I want to talk about you becoming a reporter. And and after China, tell us a little bit about that journey. You wrote the book and what happened after that. So yeah, so this is something I cover in the introduction to Red, White, and Blind. And I'm glad that um that we're gonna get into that because literally the book is coming out yesterday, today, uh, you know, when you when this goes goes live. Um, and in the, the introduction of Red, White, and Blind, I sort of go through this quickly, this story, just so people are aware of who I am. But I, my, my, my awareness of media and the way the media was distorting the truth began really in 2000. I was back from China. I'd just gotten back from China. I was working on my book, Double Happiness. And it was the first election I was really into and I could vote in. And I watched the way that that at the time I was like, I thought Ralph Nader was clearly the best candidate. It was Bush and Gore and Nader. And I was just stunned at how much the media just swept his whole candidacy under the rug. It was there was no coverage of it or when it was, it was this really negative thing. So I, I noticed that. Um, and then uh, I moved to San Francisco. I moved to Cal. I actually went back to China, um, which I could get into that experience at some point. But maybe that's another book. And I, when I came back from China the second time, I moved to San Francisco, I moved to California, I moved out here, and I started writing uh, politically. And so I was brought on board, I was this sort of citizen blogger for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and I was. I also started publishing my own political magazine, because I was really curious in the way that the media was distorting things. And I wanted to sort of get to the truth, which is which is maybe the thread through all of this, is like laying aside your preconceived notions and trying to get right at the truth of things. That's what I'm doing with double happiness. That's why I went to China to figure out what's really going on. And there's an element that that is there for sure that is driving red, white, and blind too. That's a drive that I have inside of myself. And I don't think it'll, you know, knock on wood, it'll never die. That's a big part of who I am. And so, yeah, so then I was a citizen blogger in San Francisco for the Chronicle. I was running this political magazine called Garlic and Grass. And I noticed, I, I went to this, they put me on this event uh, that a senator was going to be coming to San Francisco and going to be speaking at this fancy hotel downtown. And his name was Joe Biden. And I didn't know much about him. Uh, he was a senator from Delaware, as you know, at this point. And I went to the event and I and I watched uh, Joe Biden speak. And he was at the time very eloquent and forceful. And he was basically advocating for us to invade Iraq. And um, or he didn't say the word invade, but to basically take military action. And so I was there watching and I was writing notes. And I was like, OK, I'm going to write my, my piece about this. And he was pretty persuasive. You know, I was like, OK, I see there's a lot of good reasons to do this. But there are a few things that were left out. This this thing he didn't mention that, you know, Iraq would probably be, you know, there, there would be bombing and they'd probably destroy the country. And like a lot of people would die. And he wasn't really taking that into consideration, I felt. So I um, wrote that piece. And then when it was published in the Chronicle, they took out some of the stuff, some of the, the, the criticisms that I had. Um, they sort of like reworked it. And um, and it was a real interesting experience. I was like, so what's going on here? Like, how are how how does this how does this happen? And then I wrote another piece for the Chronicle called um, it was a piece about Craigslist. It was in the early days of Craigslist. And I was just like, here's why Craigslist is awesome. And because I, I really liked Craigslist at the time, you could sort of barter things. And I, I think it was called Bartering Bliss on Craigslist. And it was similar. I had a few little lines in there because George W. Bush was president, not necessarily negative, but just sort of like mentioning George W. Bush in the piece. And they took that out. And I was just like, this is so interesting. Like these little somebody, you know, who's doing this? 
And so that's that's the um, early 2000s. Should I get into 2015? Because I feel like that's where we would jump into Red, White, and Blind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So then, so let's fast forward. So I, I was running my own political magazine. I was had some pieces published in different places. I took a little bit of time off from that as I was developing my software engineering career and stuff like that. And I started getting back into to doing journalism a lot more in 2015. And I started writing about the Democratic primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And Huffington Post saw one of my pieces and they they wanted me to come write at Huffington Post. So I did. And so I was writing at Huffington Post. I wrote a bunch of different articles about the primary. And my pieces were typically very popular because there weren't very many people writing in sort of big publications from the Bernie Sanders perspective. So I would have pieces go live on Huffington Post and within a day or within a few hours be, you know, have 20,000, 50,000 views, sometimes 100,000 views. And they'd get shared all over on social media. And it was going... It was going really well. I was building this following and I felt like I was educating people and a lot of people were not getting sort of what I felt was the full perspective on the race until a couple days before the primary. And um, neither Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders had enough earned delegates to claim the nomination outright. So it's going to be a contested nomination. It was going to go to the convention and the people called the superdelegates, these people who vote with the strength of 10,000 voters, basically, were going to determine who was going to be the nominee. So I wrote this piece saying, um, focusing on trust, and Donald Trump had already won the nomination on the Republican side. So head-to-head polling was showing that Bernie Sanders was polling better against Donald Trump in head-to-head polls. And I said, I think the reason for this is is trust, because on this trust metric, Bernie Sanders is way higher than Hillary Clinton. And when independent voters are going to probably swing this election one way or the other, this trust metric really counts. So I wrote this piece and I went into some of the reasons that people may not trust Hillary Clinton. Um, I went into some of the reasons that people probably trust Bernie Sanders. And I published it um, in the evening. I went, I saw, I already went to 10,000 or 15,000 views or whatever. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning and the piece was gone. It was just completely taken down. There was, it was no sign of it. And I would never again write for Huffington Post. That was the end of it. And it was the most, prof- I mean, I had been interested in censorship and I'd witnessed little bits of it here and there, but it was the most clear and obvious form of it I'd ever seen and personally experienced it in my own life. So that was really the beginning of Red, White, and Blind. And before we get into the book, which I'm excited to read a little bit of from the book mm-hmm. and everything like that to get into that, I want to say that there's also a nugget in this story that is the Pandora's box, I think, that we're going through with the media right now where the media sort of, we're sort of opening up the media box. We're seeing all of this like evil stuff, right? But at the bottom, there's hope in the myth of Pandora, right? There's at the bottom of the box, there's hope. And what was really interesting about that story is I go online and I'm like, where's Tony Bersunis' article? There were a number of people on these like sort of subreddits. I saw it, but now it's gone. I can't find it. Oh, here it is. Somebody had copied it and pasted it. And so I copied it and pasted it myself. I put it on my medium.com blog, which I occasionally wrote in. Um, and I put it on Twitter. I just put a link to it on Twitter. Here's my piece. It was censored by the Huffington Post. And then a couple of days, like I think it's the next day I get on the plane, fly to Philadelphia for the convention. And when I arrive in Philadelphia and people sort of when I they some people recognize me or know me, they're like, oh, Tony Bersunis. Yeah, we, we, we liked your piece. We don't know why it was taken down. I thought you made a lot of good points. Um, I agree. This, the superdelegates should choose Bernie Sanders for the reasons you laid out and things like that. And what I realized is that the article then became my most read piece of the year. 
So if this is the birth of independent media, right? So Huffington Post, like the sort of top-down model of distribution of information is trying is trying to censor and is going to continue to try to sort of work their censorship and work their own particular control of the news. But what's happening is instead we're witnessing this, what I call a new enlightenment, where there's this birth of independent media of shows like the one that we're doing right now, you know, where people can talk one-on-one, -on -one, we can upload this to the internet and 10 or 10,000 or 10 million people can find it and share it without somebody else saying, no, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to make that point. You're not allowed to have that perspective. That is going away. And so it's, I'm very hopeful about it, even though a lot of Red, White and Blind is about censorship and disinformation and, and the way that the corporate mainstream media is manipulating the narratives. There's this very hopeful, um, what I would say is a birth, this very hopeful sort of sprouting of all of the millions of flowers. So that's that story. You know, it's it's interesting because I've I've I think I was I was blind to a lot of things too, right? So working kids, you know, not paying a lot of attention to media until, of course, pandemic hit. Like a lot of us became aware at, dur during a tragic time, you know. And there's been other tragic times, but you turn the cha you know channel to one media outlet, you hear one story, you hear the same story with a different twist on another media outlet, and then there's the third one, and I'm not going to name them because it's not about that. Um, the problem is for me, the facts are the facts are the facts, right? The, at the end of the day, the facts are the facts. Now, why is it that we can't stick to that, Tony? Why is it that we always have to, in the media, put in things that aren't factual? Because if we, if it was facts, everybody would be talking similarly, but that's not what's happening. Yeah, and that's what we'll get into. Um, the reason is because people have biases and there's in red, white, and blind, I really go to great length to distinguish three kinds of bias because it's important to know if we just say, oh, the media is biased and everybody says that, but we don't know what that really means. It just means, oh, they're biased against me. You know, it's sort of the subtext is that they're not saying what I want them to say. So I really spent a lot of time thinking about this and researching this and writing about this. And there's three kinds of bias that, that I distinguish. So the first is innocent bias. And this is the bias that we all have based on our upbringing, based on, you know, race, gender, class, background. I grew up in West Virginia. You know, I went to China. I'm a white guy. Like, right, like there's all these different kinds of biases that I bring, but they're not, I'm not trying necessarily trying to do something with them. It's an innocent bias, right? You should still be aware of it. Like you don't want to read only news from people with the same innocent bias, but it's, it's innocent in the sense that there's not a direct attempt to manipulate the narrative. Then there's what I call systemic bias. And this is in some ways a, a very important complex one to understand, which is the bias that comes from wherever you work, right? Where a journalist works, where a journalist gets their money, right? So if I work, so I was writing for Huffington Post. So there's gonna be this systemic bias where I'm gonna wanna write so I don't get censored by Huffington Post. So knowing what that does, so systemic bias includes things like, um, you know, don't say something that the advertisers on that company dislike. Uh, say the things that are going to get you promoted and not demoted or fired. Um, don't cause the publication itself to look bad, right? There's all these different kinds of bias. And increasingly, because these giant corporations are owned by even bigger corporations, there's only five corporations right now that own basically everything that can be said in the corporate media. You now have systemic bias is now not just, you know, the New York Times or CNN or Fox. It's who owns that, right? So it's not ABC. It's Disney, Right. Or it's not, you know, uh, NBC, it's GE or, you know, it's whoever owns that. 
And so those corporations might have interest. They want a war because they're going to make a lot of money selling weapons. Or, you know, they want people to be sick as bad as it is because they're getting all their money from pharma. And pharma makes more money when people are sick. We have to acknowledge that. So systemic bias is a little complicated, but it's really powerful. And you can pull it apart when you think about it. The third kind of bias, which we also have to acknowledge, and I spend a lot of time in this, is what I call nefarious bias. And this is the actual manipulation of the news that goes on by intelligence agencies and, and other groups that want to deliberately manipulate it. So I spent a whole chapter looking at Operation Mockingbird, which is declassified. We now know the CIA you know, put people in all of the major news organizations for you know, 30 years. And that was all declassified in the 70s. And it came out all of the different ways they had manipulated the narrative, put different stories in, removed certain stories, have journalists say certain things. And I spent some time in the book looking at like, well, so is that still going on? And they say the CIA, when George W. H. W. Bush took over, he has this memo that goes out, we're not going to do this anymore. We're done with that. But then you read the actual memo and there's all these loopholes in it. Like we're not going to do paid manipulation anymore, but we welcome unpaid. So, you know, and there's this other, there's just all these loopholes. And then I document all of the examples over the last 30 years, 40 years leading up to today that we know that that's still going on, that there's, and now we have the Twitter files. You know, literally I wrote my book and one of my early readers uh, who I had as a beta reader, she just sent me an email saying, you know, it's so interesting. Everybody's shocked by the Twitter files, but I read your book and I knew that, you know, that was, you, you predicted that in your book. And I do to a certain extent, red, white, and blind lays out all the reasons that that was going on. We just didn't have the proof. And now it comes out in December that literally the FBI was, I was just reading this morning, the FBI had 80 agents literally just looking for jokes about things like the election or COVID that they would then censor accounts, even, even Twitter accounts that had less than 100 followers would be censored for a joke. So if they had 80 agents just looking at jokes, I mean, the, the level of the manipulation, that's the FBI, um, is, is pretty stunning. So innocent bias, systemic bias, and nefarious bias. And that's why that's why the news cycle today is, is complicated. Now, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think, you know, we this podcast has always been, you know, we, we tell all sides. You know, that's what's really important to me is that we tell the truth and we tell all sides of what that looks like. So I appreciate you sharing that. Ham 10 is a leader in IT enterprise solutions and staffing. They are driven to transform their clients' business performances. They do this every day by providing their clients with the best services and products. Products like BizLego, an online community platform, and Colear, a unique learning management system. They also transform the lives of women and children through their associated nonprofits, SheTech, which supports women in and joining the technology field, and Softkin, support organization for kids in need. Pam 10 technology for social good. Go to pam10.com for more information. I'd love for you, I know you want to read an excerpt from your book that is brand new when this episode comes out. So is it, do you want to read it to us now? Absolutely. I'd love to. Yeah. The book is literally out today. Um, it was released last night um, I, with, at a book release event. And um, you can go to redwhiteandblind.com to find it, or you can uh, order it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever books are sold. So let's, um, this is the introduction to the book. So um, it, it opens with this quote. We will know our disinformation campaign has been successful when everything the American people believe is false. 
and that's William Casey, director of the CIA from 1981 to 1987. Virginia Roberts folded eight white towels into stacks, ensuring the seams lined up and the spa's floral logo appeared in the corner. She placed the stacked towels on a polished granite countertop. There were no customers, so she tied her blonde hair into a ponytail and resumed reading where she had left off in an illustrated guide to massage therapy. She found the book fascinating. I'm only 15, she reminded herself, but she had a goal now to ascend from mere attendant at the luxurious Mar-a-Lago resort to real professional massage therapist. A woman with pointy black locks of hair appeared. Virginia offered the woman tea as she always did and asked politely whether she had an appointment. The woman didn't have an appointment, but she accepted the tea. With a friendly smile and with a proper English accent, the woman asked Virginia several questions about the spa before she asked about her copious notes in the massage book. With a bashful smile, Virginia shared her goal. The woman told Virginia that her boss was a wealthy man, and as it turned out, he was looking for a massage therapist for his frequent jet trips around the world. He would pay for her training if Virginia showed the right enthusiasm for the job. The woman handed Virginia her card and introduced herself. Her name was Ghislaine Maxwell. It was June 2000, and a three-year nightmare was about to unfold for Virginia as she followed in the path of dozens, perhaps hundreds or even thousands of young girls who were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Later that warm summer night, Virginia visited Epstein's Palm Beach mansion, as many of the unfortunate girls did, before they accompanied him to Paris, New York, London, and Little St. James, Epstein's private island in the Virgin Islands. The girls were offered as sexual property, escorts, and massage therapists to some of the world's most powerful and wealthy men. Millionaires and billionaires, former presidents and foreign royalty, senators and judges, hedge fund tycoons and Hollywood producers, powerful attorneys and famous actors, chairmen of boards and CEOs of giant conglomerates. They all flew on Epstein's plush private plane. The plane was nicknamed the Lolita Express. Ascending from a resort attendant to a professional massage therapist was not in the cards for Virginia. Shortly after that night, as she tells the story, she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew of England, famed attorney Alan Dershowitz, and many others. Those known to have flown on Epstein's jet many times include Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and countless others. No legal action was brought against Epstein for years. The first case brought against him occurred in 2005, when a different girl's mother brought charges of sexual assault on behalf of her daughter. Many other victims came forward immediately thereafter, revealing Epstein had been running a pedophilia rape ring since at least 1993. Local law enforcement amassed a litany of evidence and multiple witnesses. It looked like a slam dunk case. Epstein faced life in prison for sex trafficking. What ensued was one of the saddest chapters in American legal and media history. The FBI stepped in and took over the case from local Florida law enforcement. The federal attorneys heard hours of damaging testimony from the victims themselves and their families, but chose to use a grand jury, which protected Epstein from the most threatening charges. Epstein's powerful attorneys, including Alan Dershowitz, who himself was a frequent traveler on the Lolita Express, secured a highly unusual non-prosecution from U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta. 
It was a sweetheart deal that required him to plead guilty to one charge at the state level. In exchange, Acosta granted Epstein immunity and canceled an FBI probe into his activities. How is this possible? Acosta claimed orders had, quote, come from above, unquote, that were, quote, above his pay grade, unquote. National media coverage was nowhere to be found. A New York Magazine piece entitled Billionaires Are Free was one of few national pieces on Epstein at the time, but it vindicated him with a shockingly permissive boys will be boys attitude. And that was that. The national media uncharacteristically dropped a story about sex and famous people. Indeed, the media ran away from the matter of a major sex trafficking ring as if from an infectious virus. Epstein had to register as a sex offender following the quote-unquote non-prosecution, but eight years later, he was still somehow flying on his personal jet with quote-unquote very young girls to his private Caribbean island on a weekly basis. It was as if he had never been convicted at all. The media stayed silent. Years later, after Virginia finally escaped Epstein's clutches, she married an Australian and took her new husband's name, Jeffrey. The birth of her daughter prompted her to overcome her shame and speak out. Virginia contacted national news organizations and she penned a 139 page expose about her experience, which was eventually submitted as evidence against Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell. In 2016, she spoke directly with ABC News host, Amy Robach. Robach was intrigued and she took up the story. She arranged a flight to New York for Virginia and Virginia felt confident enough to tell Robach the whole horrifying story in person and on the record. Robach recorded it all and spent hours preparing a report on the bombshell revelations. The story would finally expose Epstein for what he had done. But ABC News never ran the story. No corporate media channel picked it up either, despite Virginia's dogged efforts. If the main priority of American news organizations is to generate clicks and views, as many Americans believe, this story was surely a godsend, but they all ignored it. Why? We will answer this question in this book. I could sit here and, listen, and have you read the rest of the book to me. And it's really so incredible. So obviously I didn't know all of that, right? I knew that, you know, I know what happened in the end and what's going on now, but I didn't know all of that. And, and, and Tony, are we fixing this problem? So yes and no. Um, and that's why I wrote the book. Um, there was a point in writing the book. I was like, why am I spending all of my efforts, you know, three years of my life, every spare minute I have in my busy life for a book that might just be censored, right? Itself. I am optimistic, even though I have my dark moments and we can get into both of those. Um, I'm optimistic because of what I mentioned before with the time I was censored at Huffington Post. I think we are in a time where, you know, in the body, when you have this immune system that once it gets stimulated, it's an awesome force for health and for healing, right? Um, but it needs to be exposed to the to the illness or whatever it is, or the um, the toxin. What's happening right now is people are realizing, and I think it's really important what you said, this isn't one side or the other. I, I deliberately wrote this book. I don't want this to be the Democrat book or the Republican book on this problem. This is an issue for both sides, and it's really important that we see this. 
And people are, are waking up to this from different perspectives, from different sides, from on both the right and the left and independents, that the media is biased. And we saw it absolutely during the pandemic. Uh, we saw it absolutely during the election. Um, and what's happening is people are losing like faith in the corporate mainstream media has been going down for for decades, really, ever since the consolidation under these giant corporations reached culmination around 2005 ish, when it really got down to just five corporations. And so we have this the Internet now we have this upswing, this growth of independent media. And the reason I'm optimistic is because I draw comparisons to a time 600 years ago when uh, Johann Gutenberg invented the movable, movable type printing press. And this was at a time in Europe where you had a very top-down distribution of information. It was the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. Uh, the feudal system and the Catholic Church basically dictated everybody's life, dictated truth. Like, this is, this is what the truth is. If you do this, if you pay us this money, you can go to heaven. If you don't, you're going to hell. Uh, the earth is the center of the universe, and anybody that says different is going to be, you know, is, is a heretic and a blasphemer. But with the movable type printing press, we went from, you know, I, I did some research into this. Before that, there were fewer than 50,000 books in all of Europe. Within 50 years after the, the invention of the movable type printing press, there were over 12 million books. Literacy had flowered. People were not just able to read. People were able to write. People were, were able to publish. And this directly led to the Renaissance, which, which was the birth of, sci of science as we know it, as well as art and music and philosophy and politics. That led to the Reformation, which changed our entire relationship to religion as a, as a civilization, and then to the Enlightenment itself, which led to the United States and led to France and led to these constitutions where we have the right to free speech and the right to the free press and the right to assemble and the right to petition the government for our wrongs. And that led to all of what we have now, like what we really consider Western civilization, which is science and democracy. These are like the, the bedrock values, and they are definitely under threat. I think we see censorship. I, I really reserve my toughest language for censorship because I think that's the one thing that science and democracy will not survive. You can't have science if there's only one there's only one version of COVID and there's only one version of what where it came from. There's only one version of how you treat it. That's the end of science. That's the Catholic Church saying the earth is the center of the galaxy. And if you disagree with us, you know, then the word was uh, blasphemer or heretic. Now we have, you know, conspiracy theorists and these words that are meant to sort of banish people's whole way of thinking. And it's the same with democracy. You can't have democracy if only one there's only one way of thinking about something. That's that's authoritarianism. So what's happening is the internet is now has come along and we're, I think we're in the second inning of a nine inning game of what the internet is going to do. It's like the movable type printing press. It is democratizing the distribution of information. And we're now moving into a world where it's even more powerful than the printing press because the printing press, you still had to have a printing press, right? You still had to be able to make the, make the, um, make the paper. And I guess not everyone has an internet connection in the entire world. So we could get into that. But, you know, the vast majority of people have access to this, can watch a show like ours, can make a show like ours, can talk to somebody, can bring somebody on who's interesting, who maybe has ideas that are being censored elsewhere and upload it. And I think we're in, a, in the, the beginning phases of a real rebirth and we are fixing this. We are the immune system of this. Um, we're storytelling creatures, right? We, we understand the world through stories. We understand the world through narratives. And if you allow these corporations to basically tell you the story of what, what your life is about, 
what you're supposed to hope for, what you're supposed to fear, what you're supposed to long for, what you're supposed to uh, be terrified by, you've given up a tremendous amount of power in your life. And the human experience is one of living through stories, of living through, here's what my life is about. You know, so the news isn't just, did so-and-so happen or not? Did this person get killed or did this election happen? It's the narrative of what you're living through. This is what's going on in the world. We really saw this in the pandemic. This is this is what's going on in our civilization now. This is what you should fear. This is what you should long for. And we are, it is our birthright, I believe, like as human beings to be able to create our own narratives and to find out for ourselves what the truth is and to be able to share that with others. And the internet is enabling that. And so I'm very optimistic even though I have my darker moments where I see that censorship has also gotten worse. So that's my long answer to your short question. I think we are fixing this, um, but stay tuned. <laughs> do you think more, more reporters and people do not talk about it because they're afraid of the backlash, um, the, you know, cancel culture, the whole nine yards around that. And, um, and and just being you know raked over the coals for for and and other other organizations that are hiring them if they come out and share these types of things. I mean, you're an independent journalist, which makes it much easier. But for those who really want to stay connected, they almost have to stay somewhat quiet. If I'm saying that correctly, absolutely. And that's what I talk about with systemic bias. Like systemic bias is extremely strong, and it's. Um, I, I use an interview with Noam Chomsky. Um, he was interviewed by this English journalist named Andrew Marr. This is 20 years ago or something, but it's a really good interview where um, Noam Chomsky had come out with this piece. And I, I have, you know, I think Noam Chomsky and the Manufacture of Consent is a very important book. And I mentioned that quite a bit in my book. Um, Noam Chomsky says, he had written this piece saying, you know, most of the mainstream journalists are just, I don't remember his phrase, but it was basically like stenographers for people in power. Right, which I, it was something like that, something as as brilliant as that, and so Andrew Marr has him on, and he says, "Look, you 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 wrote this piece. Like, what do you think? I'm I'm censoring myself, and I'm only saying the things that the people in power want me to say." And Chomsky's response is really good. He says, "I think you believe everything you say you believe. What I'm saying is, if you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting." Right. So certain people get promoted, certain people do not get promoted, and I think and everyone notices that. And then you have something like Julian Assange, right, which I think is a really important case where you see somebody who had the courage to publish things very, you know, damaging to people in power and the way he's being treated. And like there's this just witch hunt and the entire corporate media is just piling on and attacking this guy who has committed no crimes. I mean, you, you literally look at all the things they say he's done. It's like, that's journalism, right? Getting information and publishing it, that's called journalism. If that's a crime, then we really are in much worse state than, than we think we are. So to see that, how Julian Assange is being treated on one hand, and then you see, yes, this systemic bias that really enforces and rewards conformity in places like CNN and, and Fox and NPR and the New York Times, I mean, on all sides, um, it's really, it's really important to witness that. And so what I propose in Red, White, and Blind, and I spent a lot of time in this, is um, a balanced media diet. I think that's the most important thing to... Okay, let me take one step back quickly. So in addition to the new enlightenment that I just mentioned, I think what we're cultivating, I use a phrase for it, I call it media consciousness. And maybe this comes back from my own history is like seeing people meditate and like working on consciousness about our own inner problems. You know, we, 
we, we meditate to understand in some senses what's going on inside of us. You know, and you can meditate and you can realize there's these voices in my, vo in my head saying, I'm, I'm not smart enough, or I'm not pretty enough, or I'm not rich enough to like have my dreams. But then you realize a lot of times if you have the patience and you meditate or you do therapy, that those are voices I told myself as a child, or I learned to tell myself in high school or at some traumatic time, and they're not useful anymore. And I can set them aside. And actually, I have all of all that I need to achieve my dreams. And that and how powerful it is, how powerful that is as a realization as we go through life. I want to use the same kind of um, paradigm for thinking about media consciousness, which is why I use the word consciousness, to be able to read the news and say, okay, here's a voice coming into my head. And just like that voice that was telling me I'm not good enough to have my dreams. What is that voice? Like, where does it come from? Oh, that's a thing I read on the New York Times, or that's something I heard on NPR. Is that useful for me that I'm supposed to be scared of this or like that war is really important? Like, I, I, it doesn't mean it is. It doesn't mean it isn't, right? It might be important. But to have that consciousness to step back and examine that voice. And by cultivating media consciousness, we become part of this new enlightenment. We become part of this uh, growing force of people that are not going to just be told the narrative and be fed what we're supposed to be scared of and what we're supposed to long for. Because as we go through life, we make we make important decisions in our life, right? We decide, you know, am I going to travel? Am I going to pursue this career or that career? Am I going to um, buy a house or rent? Am I going to own a car? Am I going to get a vaccine, you know, or get it, have an abortion or own a gun or like all of these important things? Am I going to travel to this country? Am I going to have a child? You know, we make these huge decisions in our life. And if we make them without media consciousness, we are being manipulated much more than we think by these giant voices of the media. They're as powerful as those voices we had from our childhood. And mm -hmm. so this book is about looking at those voices and looking at why am I um, believing this one particular way of looking at this controversial question? And so that's what I what I really hope people get from Red, White, and Blind is this idea of media consciousness, that we can reach this place where we can, we still need to know about the world. Like the world is important to know about. It's important to know about events. So that's why I propose a balanced media diet as something to help us cultivate media consciousness. I love that balanced media diet. Who would ever think that? That's really very well said. That And, and it's so important to really educate yourself and be conscious of how you're educating yourself too. It's not just listening externally. We also need to listen to the internal voices that we're, and what we're experiencing while we're hearing the outside stuff happen to us, right? Because we're listening, we're taking it in and it's how are we then processing it internally. So that's that's really, really important. So Tony, one more time, tell everybody where they can go to, to find you and the book. So redwhiteandblind.com is probably the easiest to remember because you don't have to learn how to spell my name. Uh, redwhiteandblind.com, all spelled out. Excuse me. But you can certainly go to www.tonybersunas.com as well. Uh, you'll find the book there. Um, I'm also Tony Bersunas on Twitter. Um, Tony Bersunas on Facebook. Uh, I'm fairly moderately active in both places. And then I have a sub stack as well where I blog. And that's... Um, redwhiteandblind.substack.com. And then the last thing is I'm starting a YouTube channel myself. I want to be practice what I preach. And so uh, Red, White, and Blind is my new YouTube channel. We're going to have, um, I'm going to try to do it at least a couple times a month. We're going to have people, I think, unheard voices on my YouTube channel. I'm going to interview and we're going to do some 
deep dives into issues like what I just read about Jeffrey Epstein from the book. We're going to have occasional episodes where we take an issue in the news and we pull it apart and we look at it. And so that's at uh, Red, White and Blind YouTube channel. That's where you can find me. Yeah, the book is just freshly out. So I'd love it if you go take a look at it. Uh, it's also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And you can also, if you'd like, you can get a free excerpt of the book. If you um, are thinking about, you might like it, but you're not sure, go to redwhiteandblind.com. You just put in your email address, you get a free excerpt. I'll send it right to your inbox. Uh, you can do that uh, right now as you're listening. So redwhiteandblind.com for the free excerpt. And you had said before we started the podcast and we were talking, you had said that it took you how many years to write Double Happiness? Double happiness is 10, 10 years. Yeah. And how many for this? I mean, look at the size of this book. How many years? Uh, three years for this one. So a little bit less, but boy, it was a huge journey. Yeah. A lot of passion probably is put in this book because you're so passionate about this topic. So it just went really, really quickly. Um, that's that's amazing. So um, anything next after this? Is there going to be a third book in you, you think? <laughs> I did the same thing after Double Happiness. I swore I would never write another book because it's just such a, um, it's such an intense thing. My wife is a is a birth doula, and at one point she said, you know, this is like you're having a baby. And there's an element of it, you know. And I, I don't want to try to, you know, compare the two experiences because they're so different. But there's an element of like you get out of it, and you're like, I'll never do it again. And then a few years later, you're like, I could probably do it again. <laughs> and um, I, you know, right now the two topics that really are interest to me and I would need to have that same passion that I, I am so passionate about the media and that's is what fueled this book. Um, I would love to get into elections and really look at that. I think it's a really interesting question that people have such strong opinions about on both sides. And I think I would love to, to try to figure that one out. And then maybe I could also see myself writing about climate change because I think that's also such a huge one. So We'll see. Um, right now, literally, this book is out today. This is a brand new thing. I think I'm going to just work on this book for 2023, see if I can get the word out, um, share it with as many people as can find it useful. And then uh, we'll see from there. Absolutely. And super congratulations. I'm excited that you're my first guest this year. This is a topic that I have really wanted to cover, um, censorship and and really sharing You know how the media really helps us to think the way we think. And we have to be conscious of that. But I want to ask you my last question that I ask, I'm, I'll be asking you the first person to answer this question, but I asked the same question to all my guests for the entire year. So um, the first year I said, if you knew then what you know now, what would that be? The second year was, what is the footprint you're creating now that you want to leave behind? But now my question is, as I'm really trying to focus in on, on also interviewing some younger change makers who are trying to find their way in the world, share a great lesson that you learned. It doesn't have to be about, about your career. It could be a personal lesson that you can now hand down to someone who's either seasoned or a young change maker who's listening and up and coming. What would that lesson be? I think it would be, look at your fears. What's the thing you're scared of? And go right at that. It's usually, you know, like like the path in the, in the story of the Minotaur, right? Where you're in the and you have this path to get out, um, and you have to have, follow your little string to get back out of the labyrinth uh, where the Minotaur is chasing you. I think if you look at your fears, that's the string that will lead you out of your labyrinth of any confusion you have about what you're supposed to do with your life. Look at what you're scared of and and, and conquer that fear um, before it conquers you. Uh, that's what I would say. That's my. No, I just want to. 
I just want to say that it's really interesting that you said that because I hadn't flown for 27 years and I just flew the end of 2022. And it was me looking straight in the eye of a fear that I had, you know, 27 years, a long time not to fly. So I have, and now I'll be flying for the third time within a year because of that. So I, you know, it's, it's, I'm still nervous, but if you, if you look at your fear and you do what you can to conquer it, it really, there's a free, there's a part of freedom that happens. So I'm so glad that we didn't practice this. There was, he didn't even know this question. Tony had no idea what the question was going to be. So that was a great, a great first answer. So thank you so much for, uh, for that insight. I appreciate it. Jody, thank you so much. It's been really an honor to be on here and I'm so honored to be your first guest in 2023. And yeah, let's all go conquer our fears uh, in the new year. Absolutely. And please read Red, White, and Blind to educate yourself on censorship. It's really, really important. Follow Tony, as he said, and he gave you all of those. And we'll have that all written out for everybody on on the YouTube channel as well. One more time, it is redwhiteandblind.com. Is that it? Redwhiteandblind.com is the uh, the spot to go. You get the free excerpt. You can find everything there. There's also links to my social media there. So that's where to go. Perfect. I'm going to say what I say at the end of every single podcast. Today is the day you cannot go back to yesterday and you do not yet own tomorrow. So what small or large steps are you going to take today to get yourself closer to your goals? Have a great week, everyone. Thanks again to Tony Brazunas. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Jody.